origins. That's what we're going to talk about today. Very important origins. In fact, uh, most cultures in our world have uh, some story of the world's origins. This, oh, it's, uh, the world's filled with many theories on the origin of the universe. Let me just give you a few of them. For example, if you go back to the ancient Egyptians, thousands of years ago, they, the ancient Egyptians taught about a primeval ocean upon which appeared an egg. From this egg was born the sun god Ra, who had four children, and out of the the rivalries of those four God-born children, creation eventually took place. And you'll see some, well, one's a statue and one's artwork of how the Egyptians drew the sun god Ra. Well, the the Babylonians also had an idea of origins of the universe. They believed that Human creation is just uh, one long story of, of plot and counterplot among the gods. Lots of stories of banquets and rivalry and war. For example, uh, at the beginning there were two monsters represented as dragons here. Uh, I don't know how you say these names exactly, but something like Apsu and Tiamat. But anyway, from these two spring a generation of other deities, the last of which became so powerful that Apsu and Diamat, or Tiamat, uh, plot to destroy them. Uh, the result was a struggle, and uh, Tiamat was uh, slain. His body was split into two parts, and the upper half eventually formed the heavens, and his other half formed the earth. Well, the Greeks had interesting ideas, too, as you probably know. They taught about a mythical giant named Atlas, as you'll see in that statue there who somehow stood under the earth holding it up with his head and arms. And, of course, they had all kinds of multiple gods as well. Well, the Hindus, they thought the world rested on the backs of three elephants, which in in turn stood on the back of a giant tortoise, which swam around in a cosmic sea. And that was their idea of somehow the origins of the universe. I can't fully explain that, so if you can, I would love to know. Um, Explain that to me, please. But you'll notice in all of those ideas of the origin of the universe, none none of them were actually there in the beginning. And so it's helpful that we actually go directly back to the one who was there at the beginning. Of course, God's the only one who was there at the beginning, and he's the one who wrote the first book in our Bible, that tells us about the beginning. It's helpful. It avoids all such ludicrous concepts and gives an accurate, sensible, and reliable record of our origin. Our views of origins is very important. right? So I'm glad God gives us a little bit here. Uh, very important because it's, it, it helps us to understand who we are, why we're here, where we're going, where we've come from. Uh, our present and future are actually bound up in our past, in fact. Uh, for example, if our past says that, well, you're just a bunch of animals, then is it any surprising that much of our culture acts like animals? Well, they're going to act like they've been taught they think they are, right? So your past is going to determine your present in many ways. However, if we are creatures that are made by God and we're fashioned in his image, well, that says something altogether different then about the way we're supposed to behave. It says something very different about our future destiny. 
Well, today we basically have three views for mankind's origin. Let me just throw these at you here. I'm not even going to try to attempt to, uh, to debunk them or anything like that at the moment. But number one is, the first view is atheistic evolution. So this theory teaches that man is the accidental and random product of blind and non-personal series of events. It's just a chemical and biological events. Not, nothing to do with a person. The second view is theistic evolution. Theistic being, of course, God. So it teaches there's one God, but this one God chose to uh, a different method. He chose evolution to bring all things into the present state of existence. And the third view is called special creation. Now, this is the view that man's a direct product from, from God himself, from his very hands. And, he, and, and the statements of Genesis here are real and are to be taken literally. Those are the three main views. Sadly, though, naturalism has, in many ways, replaced Christianity as the main religion of the Western world. Evolution's become naturalism's main belief. You say, well, what is naturalism? Well, you'll see the word natural in there. It's the view that every law and every force operating in our universe is natural rather than supernatural. Uh, Therefore, naturalism is going to be inherently uh, anti-God because God's supernatural. Therefore, you can't believe in that. And so we need to be careful here because uh, and we need to be careful we're not fooled by this because naturalism is a religion. The entire philosophy is built on a a faith-based premise. And, And that premise is the rejection of everything that is supernatural. And that takes a lot of faith to believe that. That is a giant leap of faith. Now, the point is proved by examining the beliefs of some naturalists. For example, let me just point out one to you. Uh, you want I don't know who else to pick on other than one of the best-known scientific celebrities of the past few decades was a man named by uh, uh, Carl Sagan. He was a renowned astronomer and a media figure. He had a TV show. Carl Sagan was overtly antagonistic to biblical theism, to special creation. He became the chief televangelist for this religion of naturalism. And underlying all he taught was this firm conviction that everything in the universe was just here as a result of natural causes. There was all natural explanations for everything that we see. And he had a highly rated television series called Cosmos, in which he constantly said sort of these sort of things. Let me give you an idea of his trademark statement. Uh, some of you may have heard this in Truth Project. Here's what he said, quote, The cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be, end quote. Carl Sagan's slogan is, helpful for us you want to understand how a naturalist thinks and how they uh, how they mistake religious belief for true science essentially he what he did is he uh, deified the universe and everything in it and toward the end of his life sagan wrote this quote 
Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. End quote. That's from the pale blue dots. And so, it's sad, this atheistic evolution. Where does it lead you? Well, it leads you to that. It, his, relig- his religion of naturalism led to utter insignificance and despair. Where has naturalism led us today? Where has it led us? We're, well, look at history. It has meant moral catastrophe for our modern society. The most damaging ideologies of the 19th and 20th centuries did not come from religion or Christianity. It comes from mainly Darwinism, humanism. For example, let me just give you some examples. One of the seven men who ruled the world from the grave is Karl Marx. He followed Charles Darwin in his economic and social theories, and eventually Darwinism led to communism, one of the most deadly ideologies our world's ever seen. The racialism of guys like Ernst Haeckel was also rooted in Darwinism. Uh, The Nazi movement in Germany under Hitler was rooted in Darwinism. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, his whole philosophy was based on evolution, and he saw there was there was two types of people, which he called the master class and the sheep-like herd. And Nietzsche's philosophy influenced the whole Nazi movement in Germany. Of course, out of that, you it just be, it was a mess in our world, World War II. In modern times, though, uh, even more frightening prospect looms for our world, for humanity. Now even the church seems to be losing the will to defend what the Bible actually teaches on the origins of the universe. Many in the church are too intimidated or too embarrassed to affirm the literal truth of the biblical count of creation. Sadly, more and more people are embracing a view called old earth creationism or what sometimes gets called progressive creationism. It's this idea of you're just blending some of the principles of biblical creationism with the the naturalistic and evolutionary theories. My friends, you need to recognize that's wrong to do that. Hopefully you can see as we go through this why that's the case. But as we we look at Genesis, you you need to know that the text suggests that it is literal. There is no suggestion here whatsoever that this is symbolic, that this is poetic, allegorical, or mythical. In fact, if you believe Jesus, which I hope you do, Jesus interpreted Genesis literally. Too many Christians are doing what answers in Genesis is drawn in this, this, um, this next picture here. This picture here, of course, you'll see the, there's two castles. You have the the castle of humanism, and the castle of Christianity. Now, I want you to notice the two castles have different foundations. Castle humanism has the foundation of autonomous human reasoning, and castle Christianity has the foundation of God's Word. What I also want you to see is that humanism is attacking the foundation of Christianity. What's Christianity doing? 
Christianity is not even unified in what's going on. So the answers in Genesis is accurately, sadly, accurately identified what is often happening. For example, you look carefully at that picture, one soldier's sleeping, one soldier's playing, one soldier's shooting at his own foundation, one soldier's shooting at balloons like abortion and gay marriage. Notice no one is actually shooting at humanism's foundation, which is autonomous human reasoning. (laughs) And as a result, what's happening in our culture? What's happening in our world today? Sadly, Christianity's on the decline, isn't it? Did you read the statistics in the New Zealand Herald a couple weeks ago? Not a good state. Christianity is losing the war because the foundation of God's Word is slowly being eroded away. It's being destroyed. So we need to go to the foundation, shore up our own foundation, show the world that autonomous human reasoning is a faulty foundation to stand upon. And Genesis helps us to do that if we believe it. So I want you to see God's words here. Some of the most important words, amazing words in your Bible. Genesis 1, verse 1. Have a look. Because these are the words of the living God. He says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Precious powerful words. One of the things this text does for us, it tells us who is the creator of the universe. Well, the English Bible you have in front of you probably says God. That's helpful, but the Hebrew is even more helpful. In Hebrew, it's the word Elohim. In fact, uh, all through chapter 1, it uses Elohim, In fact, it's, I think if I remember, it's used 33 times in chapter 1. And this one word, Elohim, teaches us six truths about God. Six truths about God. Number one, we learn that God is self-existent. He is self-existent because notice the Bible says, in the beginning. So, you see those words, ask the question, in the beginning of what? In the beginning of what? Is this the beginning of God? Some people have have come to that conclusion. This is the beginning of God. And so what I want you to see here, though, and, and elsewhere in Scripture says this as well, that God was already here when there was nothing in this universe. There was no universe. In fact, the Bible says God has no beginning. He has no end. He has no origin. He has no birthday. Because Elohim means he is the self-existent one. We also learn that God is self-sufficient. In other words, God needs nothing else. He has no needs. He doesn't need air. He doesn't need water. He doesn't need food. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He's dependent upon no one because he's self-existent. Number three, we we see that God is eternal. When we say eternal, it means that God is. He's always been, will always be, 
always has been. He is ever the same in his eternal being as he was millions and millions of years ago. He doesn't change. Elohim also teaches us, number four, that God is multiple. He's multiple. It's interesting, in Hebrew, Elohim is in the plural. In the plural, I just you say, well, what, in, what sense is God plural or multiple? Well, we, we see that he is Trinitarian in his essence. Uh, he is a trinity. He is the trinity. And some people get confused by the trinity, so let me quickly try to explain the trinity, which is really impossible for me to do, so bear with me. But you'll, you'll see here a very common way of explaining the trinity. Uh, you'll notice that uh, you have three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All three make God. One God, only one. Three persons, but they're distinct persons. So the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. Okay, I hope that helps if you look at it that way. There, there's no way I can perfectly illustrate the Trinity, sorry. Uh, most illustrations just end up turning into heresy, so bear with me. Maybe this other one will help you out here. There, we need to understand that God is one essence. And in passing through each member of the Trinity is this one essence, and it, it is without division. And so that's why this illustration for me is helpful, and I've purposely put dotted lines in there because they are one essence, right? You can't, you can't split them up into three, otherwise you have three gods. So one essence passing through each member of the Trinity, and it's without division. So how else is God multiple? We, we see that in the, this word Elohim. Well, he's infinite in his attributes. See, Elohim is not only the plural of personality, it's also the plural of majesty. Uh, in other words, it speaks of an unlimited God, one who is unbounded in his greatness. For example, God is infinite in many ways. We have to come up with words like God is omnipresent. He's omniscient. He is omnipotent, immutable, incomprehensible, and eternal. All of those words show God to be unbound in His greatness. He is the plural of majesty. Well, what else does the word Elohim teach us? Number five, that God is single. Your Bible says, in the beginning, God created. Well, I hope your Bible says that. God created. That it, it's using a plural noun, but a singular verb. Very interesting. Plural noun, God, Elohim. Created is singular, though. Here's the point, my friends. Elohim is not just a plural noun. It's also a uni-plural noun. In other words, it's reflecting a unity or a oneness within this plurality. In other words, the Trinity. He is also single, though, in this. So what does this mean for us? It means that you and I don't worship three gods. We worship one God. We worship this one God who exists in three persons, the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And this also means that you and I are not polytheists like everyone else, like the Greeks and the Romans and Egyptians and the Babylonians. 
No, we're monotheists, and we worship a God who is uniquely structured to meet every one of our needs. Number six, what do we learn about God? He is powerful. He is powerful, because at the root, you'll see in the word Elohim, that, that part of Elohim, El, means He is the strong one. He is the strong one. It carries the connotation of power, greatness, vastness, and height. Therefore, it's, it's most appropriate that God should reveal Himself as Creator with this particular name. So you might be wondering, why does He use over 30 times His name Elohim in chapter 1? Because this is all about His creation. He wants to show Himself as the powerful one. And then He'll change that later on to names He'll use, Yahweh and Jehovah and so forth. But we see here in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created. How did He create? How did He create? Good question. We see, first of all, that God created everything from nothing. Everything comes from nothing. The Hebrew word there, uh, created, uh, is the word bara. Bara means to create, to bring into being, to cause to exist that which previously had no beginning or existence. No beginning or existence. It's used, by the way, it's interesting, you don't see this word used for man. Man can't create this way. Man cannot create something out of nothing. In the Bible, this, this word bar is only used of God. He's the only one who has this ability to fashion and make things out of nothing. He brings all the materials into existence. But we as mankind, we can't do that, can we? We have to take pre-existing materials to make something else. And so that's why this word's only used of God, because he's the only one who has the ability to create out of nothing. You say, well, wow, that, uh, you know, I'm having a hard time believing that. How am I supposed to believe that God created everything from nothing? I mean, this universe is massive. Well, the answer, my friend, is by faith. Because Hebrews 11, verse 3 says this, look, by faith, we understand the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So the only way you're going to believe this is to God to do this work in you, to cause you to believe this. The question is, do you? Do you believe God created everything from nothing? God says you can't please Him without faith. It's impossible to please Him without faith in Hebrews 11. So He created everything from nothing. But number two, how did He do this? The Bible says He created by speaking. By speaking. In fact, ten times here in chapter 1, we see those words, God said. God said. God said. And every time God says something, When he says whatever that thing is that he wants to bring into existence, it comes into existence. So what did he bring into existence when God spoke? In other words, here's my third question for you. What are the components of creation? Well, you you, you have all the main ones here right in verse 1. There's three of them. The universe is actually a continuum of these three elements or components of time, space, and matter. 
And by the way, no, none of those have any meaningful existence without the other two. For example, think about what, what, what meaning would it have for there to be matter without time? Or what meaning is there time without matter? Well, that's, that's pointless, isn't it? It's silly. It's not even rational to think about it. And so you notice here, God made time because he says, in the beginning. He made space when he said the heavens, and he made matter when he spoke the earth into existence. So Genesis 1-1 here can legitimately be paraphrased like this. The transcendent, omnipotent Godhead called into existence the space-mass-time universe. Well, that's one way of saying Genesis 1-1. I'm kind of glad we have it our way. It's, It's really a mouthful to say the transcendent omnipotent Godhead called into existence the space-mass-time universe. <laughs> right? So that's what he did. But what did God create? What did he create? Notice the verse 1, again, tells us two things. God created the heavens and the earth. Number one, we see God created the heavens. What is that? Well, this word can refer either to space in general or to a particular space. Sometimes we might... Uh, call space outer space, or we might talk about our atmosphere as atmospheric space. So those are ways of talking a part of the heavens. So everything that's not, if you will, on earth or on other planets or what on stars, so what's so that would be the heavens. But God also created the earth. What's this talking about? Well, I found this helpful comment from a commentator. Quote, The term earth refers to the component of matter in the universe. At the time of the initial creation, there were no other planets, stars, or other material bodies in the universe. Nor did any of them come into being until the fourth day. The earth itself originally had no form to it, so this verse must speak essentially of the creation of the basic elements of matter, which thereafter were to be organized into the structured earth and later into other material bodies, end quote. Well, I love how God starts the Bible. Of all the ways he could have started it, this has got to be, God knows what's best, doesn't he? It's got to be the best way to start the Bible. Because it refutes all of man's false philosophies concerning the origin and the meaning of our world. For example, many before me have said that Genesis 1-1, this special creation here, refutes atheism because the universe was created by God. It refutes pantheism, for God is transcendent to that which he created. But pantheism, the idea, everything is God, God's in everything. It refutes polytheism, many gods, for one God created all things. It refutes materialism, for matter had a beginning. It refutes dualism, because God was alone when he created. It refutes humanism, because God, not man, is the ultimate reality. It refutes evolutionism, because God created all things. Of course, there's many other isms you could throw in there. And Scripture would shoot them all down because there is 
one God, and he says, in the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. So what was the condition of the earth here on the dawn of day one? Well, that's verse 2. Verse 2 is helpful because it says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So we see, first of all, the earth was formless, void, and dark. So think of when God says that he creates the earth here, think of it as a shoreless ocean. Everything is is still. It's dark. There's no form. There's no life yet. There's no motion. There's no light. In other words, God creates all the raw materials of earth, but he hasn't given any form to those raw materials yet. So the form and the fullness are going to come later, and we'll get there. As you read on here in chapter 1, you're going to see how God brings form to the formlessness. He brings life to the void. Now, I found these little, uh, this little, I made a little chart here. You're going to kind of see what's going to come here in the future. The corresponding activity in the days of, of, of creation look like this. So, so what do we see in day 1, 2, and 3? Day 1, 2, and 3 of the six days of creation, God makes, number one, light on day 1. But notice what he does on day 4. So on day 1, it is formless. He fills that emptiness with what? Making the sun, moon, and stars. So there's a form to that light. On day 2, God made the sea and the sky. How does he deal with that formlessness on day five. Well, that's when he makes all the creatures that go in the water and the creatures of the air. On day three, God made a fertile earth, but it was formless. How did he form it? What did he do with it? Well, that's how God makes lots of creatures for the earth. All those land animals we have were made on day six, as well as mankind was made on Day six. So those are the corresponding activities. We'll see how God takes the formless, the emptiness, the darkness, and he fills it. What else is going on here? Well, verse 2 says that the Holy Spirit is hovering over the water. He's hovering over the water. Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So what is he doing? What does that mean? What he's doing is he's surrounding and guarding this raw material that the Trinity has made. The Hebrew word for hovering has this idea that would, uh, maybe you've seen, some of you have chickens, maybe you've seen chickens do this with their chicks. Chickens hover over their chicks, and the chicks, little chicks like to run under mother's arms in her, well, she doesn't have arms, run under her wings, and, and the The mother chicken hovers over her little babies. That's how this word is used elsewhere. And that's the idea. In Hebrew here, the Holy Spirit's hovering over this raw material that's been made. And so the word indicates that God is superintending it. He's caring for it. He is supervising his creation. The phrase is important because it identifies not just God the Father and Jesus Christ as the creator of the universe, But we see the Holy Spirit is also a prime mover 
who sets all of creation in motion. And so this truth underscores God's direct activity in all aspects of creation. He didn't just create a mechanism for evolution. He's not just the clockmaker who winds up the clock and lets it go on its own. He didn't leave the universe to just develop on its own. Instead, he is directly, personally involved in every aspect of his creation. And so, with that in mind, there's no reason then to believe in other isms like dualism and deism. Because we see a God who is hovering over the raw materials of creation here. He is superintending. He is caring. He is supervising his creation. But our Bibles say, in the beginning, God created. Well, when was that? What is the date of creation? Is our universe young or old? Now, here is where the rubber meets the road, where even many Christians will come to disagree. And there's all kinds of contradictory material and information out there coming from extra-biblical sources. I think the only way to really get to the root and to get to the solution is come to Scripture itself to find the answer. Some of you see this little lifespan of the biblical patriarchs on the screen there, if you can read that. If you take the genealogies in Genesis, particularly Genesis 1, 5, Genesis 11, and then other portions of Scripture, you can come to a fairly decent date for creation. Now, here's how this happens. Uh, just last night, I was looking at James Usher's book, The Annals of, of, uh, of the World, and he came up with a date of 4004 B.C. for the creation of the universe. And I was trying to read in, in, back in the appendix. The book is very long. I didn't have time to read the whole thing last night. But I was trying to figure out, okay, how did James Usher come up with 4004 B.C.? Well, it's, it says so right in the, in the back of the book. See, it's quite easy when you do it this way. When you're, He was a well-known historian as well as a pastor. But what he did is, according to the book, he basically started with the fall of Jerusalem, which is a fairly well-known date in world history. So somewhere around 586 B.C., 586 B.C., Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. Now that date is a little under debate, but I don't want to get into that argument. But anyway, if you take 580, let's just take 586 B.C. as a working date here for the fall of Jerusalem, and you work backwards from that. That's exactly what James Usher did, and he's used the Bible to do that. He hasn't used all this extra-biblical stuff that contradicts it themselves. Just using the Bible, he kept working himself back because the Bible tells you how long people lived and how long stuff went. And he, he eventually stopped with in the beginning at 4004 B.C. Now here's how he does that. So if you work in Genesis 1, it gives you the time of the creation of the universe to the creation of the first man. Genesis 5 contains chronological data from the time of the first man, Adam, to the great flood. So, of course, Noah's kind of in the middle there. You'll see Noah 
was, of course, the one God saved on the ark. And then Genesis 11 summarizes the chronology from the flood to Abraham, who, of course, was the founder of Israel. And then you come to the historical books in your Bible. So you've got, uh, um, of course, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, and they're containing all of this chronological data of the nation of Israel from the time of Abraham to the time of the captivity, which was 722 B.C. Then the chronology of the captivity and the restoration is, is found in other portions of your Bible, particularly the prophetical books. So if you read Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel, you'll find out how long the captivity was, uh, which was 70 years. And then you come to the intertestamental period, that time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. There's a, a chronology that's, that's helpful there. And Daniel chapter 9 gives us what is called the 70 weeks prophecy. If you know anything about that, that'll help you to kind of get to fill in the picture to the time of Christ. And so, basically, we, we know roughly when Christ came, because our whole calendar B.C., A.D. revolves around Christ. So, if you put Christ in the center of your whole calendar, you'll come eventually to the beginning being roughly 4004 B.C. But if you're, you're off by a few, a few years, it's not a big deal. The point is, the earth is young. <laughs> the earth is very young. It certainly doesn't give you room for billions of years. So I want to end by just leaving you with a few implications to think about from these two very, very important verses. What are the implications of the doctrine of creation? Number one, God's creation has value. It has great value because God himself loves his creation. He made it, and by the way, when he's done making his creation, he's going to say, wow, that's very good. And so we need to have a concern for God's creation. We need to preserve it. We need to guard it and develop what God himself has made. Now there's two huge pendulum swings, and I've put them on the scales here for you. Here's the pendulum swings that you need to be aware of and watch out for. One of them is you can abuse God's creation. God doesn't want you doing that. You're to be a caretaker of his property. You're to be a steward of everything that he has made, a wise steward of everything he's made. So that doesn't mean you can just go and do with God's creation, with, do with it however you want to do. You can't, because it doesn't belong to you. So that's one abuse. But then you've got, you got, you got some people over there, they abuse God's creation, but then there's others they worship God's creation, and they forget the Creator who made everything we see. Of course, that's wrong as well. And those are the two warnings we need to be aware of. So, we need to be balanced here. We, we need to recognize that God's creation has value. It, it is telling you something of God. As Psalm 19 says, it's declaring the glory of God, the, the earth tells you something about God. It's its handiwork. So it has value. Number two, there's justification. 
for scientifically investigating God's creation. There's nothing wrong with scientists studying God's creation, using God's creation, and and trying to take raw materials and, and create with those, per se. God's the one who's made everything. He's made it with order. He's given logical patterns, even down to the very genes and DNA within your own bodies. All the chemicals in the universe God's made, very organized. And so it's legitimate to study those patterns. Of course, we can can abuse those. But why do we do this? Why do we study God's creation? Well, number one, do it for your own good. Okay? Do it for your own good. As you study God's creation, you're going to be amazed. You're going to see a big, powerful, awesome God. But also do it for God's glory, because God says, I've made it for my glory. It is displaying me to this world. So study it to bring God glory and for your good. Number three, a third implication to consider is that nothing other than God is self-sufficient or eternal. Because God says, in the beginning, God. <laughs> there was nothing before before this, except God himself. That's it. He is the self-sufficient and eternal one. He exists before anything is brought into existence in our universe. Everything else derives its existence from God. It's here because of God, and it's here for God. So the universe exists to do his will. Number four. Evolution is hostile to God and his word. Humanism is hostile. This whole atheistic evolution idea, uh, Darwinism, it's, it's, it's hostile to God and His Word. What they've done, in the place of God as Creator, the evolutionist has substituted chance. That takes faith. <laughs> it, it's actually irrational to believe that a world, with all of its intricate ecosystems and its complex organisms is simply the result of a of a large number of indiscriminate but lucky random accidents of nature big bangs never created anything helpful and so my friend as you read genesis you are faced with a choice you have to make a choice Either you believe God created the universe or you believe God did not create the universe. (laughs) That's it. And if God did not create the universe, then God does not exist and nothing in your life has any purpose. However, if there is a creative intelligence named God, then creation is understandable. Creation is believable. God's word is believable. And we must believe what God says. The fifth implication, then, carrying on from that, is that God's sovereignty demands our allegiance. For to acknowledge the Creator naturally leads to submission to this Creator. If He's the Creator, then you and I must bow down and worship. (laughs) We must worship God. We must give Him the worth of who he is. It's interesting. You read places like Revelation chapter 5 in your Bible. 
you get this view of the throne room of God. What, what's it like in heaven? What's happening in heaven? Do you realize there is this constant praise of God going on in heaven? And one of the things they're praising God about is His creation. He is the one who has made everything. He's worthy of worship. That's what they're doing in heaven right now. That's what we will do in heaven for all eternity. And so He is worthy of your praise. He is worthy of your complete heart's adoration. Complete devotion. Love your God with all your heart, with all your mind, all your being and soul and strength. That is the appropriate response to this kind of a God who says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray. We praise you for how you have given us your word that tells us the origin of your universe. May we see you as a good and great God who is always good and always great. You're amazing. You have revealed yourself through general creation, through, through your, your creation here. And may we know you. May we love you. May we have the proper response. May we believe what your word says, that these are your words, that they are literal words. They're not meant to be taken figuratively, spiritually, or some other way. So give us faith. Give us hearts to believe what we read in the Scriptures. May we not be swayed by, by so many people who are, who are smarter than we are, who have, many of them, multiple doctorates and so forth, written many books, very, very intelligent people, but yet do not know the truth that in the beginning God. May we not be swayed by their arguments but may we be swayed by what we see in the Scriptures, that this is the authority, because you are the authority over heaven and earth. So give us that faith to believe it, for as it says here, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.